Hey, Pastor Adam here. Welcome to Talk About Anything. Now, Talk About Anything is our long-form conversational podcast. And that means that there's not really a point so much as we just want to have conversations with different people, different experiences, different points of view about different things. Things. Now, in this one, we have uh, someone who is familiar to our church, Pastor Andrew Hirschman. Uh, he has preached at Faith on Hill before. Uh, he is the pastor at Calvary Ballard, which is a church in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. Uh, and he was the pastor who officiated my wedding. So I'm a big fan. Uh, we grew up at the same church. Uh, he grew up in a uh, non-devout Jewish home. So he's Jewish ethnically and, you know, they'd, they'd celebrate, you know, Passover or Hanukkah or something. But um, his dad's a, a university professor, now retired, but very world-renowned university professor. Um, and, and when he was in uh, his senior year of high school, he became a Christian. And uh, so we, we talk about music. We talk about uh, the, the big overall theme that we talk about is how people try to take sides on issues, but and act like there's just one side or another and that two things or multiple things can't be true at once. And so we talk a lot about nuance and navigating through that. We also talk a bit about uh, people who grew up in the church or who were part of the church and who have walked away. And that's applicable, I think, to a lot of people in our church. Siblings, adult parents, children uh, who were part of the church and then left. And so we, we touch on that quite a bit. And uh, I think it's a good conversation. It kind of fulfills the point of this podcast, which is just to have conversations about anything with anyone uh, from different perspectives and sometimes it's about Jesus and sometimes it's about baseball although in this case we talked a lot about basketball which is funny for two guys who are both under six foot who don't play basketball but anyway the whole point is to have conversations and to hear perspectives and so that's what we did I hope you enjoy this episode of talk about anything uh, if you're watching the video then you should know that there is an audio only podcast on Spotify or Apple music you just have to search at, you know, Faith on Hill. And if you're listening to the audio version, you should know that there is a video version on our Facebook page, and you can check that as well and follow us at Faith on Hill on social media. All right. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andrew Hirschman from Calvary Ballard, a great church in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. You got a Fender Mustang hanging up on your wall back there. It's so trendy. You know, it's funny. That's a uh, custom guitar that um my so it was a kit and mm -hmm. it was like one of these kits that you can kind of assemble it's a fender mustang body yeah, okay. with a p-base pickup system and the neck is a uh is a i think it's a like a 60 strat neck that i just assembled i mean it's not you know it was a kit and then coleman uh did a whole like art thing on it so <laughs> it, and it actually is not intonated quite correctly i mean it, it's playable and it's, it's, you know, it actually gets played a fair amount for not being able to be completely tuned super correctly and, you know, but it works. And you're, fun, you guys, you guys are a musical family, although, right. um, you yourself, I mean, you can play music, but you're not like a big musician, you know, uh, no, but I, I like playing. I, you know, I just screw around mainly. But I think that's kind of a bummer that's gone away is like, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you get up in Seattle, um, you have conversations with other pastors about this, but something we talk about a lot in this area among pastors is we have a really hard time finding not just good musicians, but like any musicians. Absolutely. Because just fewer people play music now. Um, yeah. And in your house, like, I mean, yes, your wife was a professional musician and your brother-in-law is a professional right. musician. Right. Um, and uh, so you have you have family that are professionals, but uh, 
like your family in general, you're, you guys aren't pro level musicians or you're not like big, you know, hobbyist musicians. You just all can are kind of musical. You're right. Actually, Coleman, our second son, he just made the uh, Christ the King worship uh, band up in Bellingham mm. <laughs> as a drummer. So, you know, I mean, it's it, it does. I think everyone likes to have some kind of outlet for it, for sure. Seems yeah. Like. Yeah, uh, I, playing in his church and I I think it's good if you can do it. I just it's interesting to me just how few people have interest yeah. in it anymore. It's less uh, and less in general. Um, in so. our local school district in Shoreline here, uh, you know, the music program has recently been significantly cut, but prior to that, it had been a pretty robust scene, and a lot of the kids that either either come from church backgrounds or end up in church doing music and it's and you know as it as the school funding gets cut for it it's it does change that landscape i mean churches and schools are the main places where musicians come from it seems like you know they start with the recorder or whatever and yeah and and it's funny how many musicians have church background uh absolutely did you watch sonic highways that that foo fighters show where they recorded in a different city i haven't seen that though i i'd love to see it I, so it's yeah. worth Going to your library, checking checking out the DVD box set, yeah. uh, it's worth watching. Um, it's actually, it's it might be my favorite Foo Fighters record. It's it's amazing how really? good that record is. Um, That's one I haven't really listened to. It's to me, it's like for Foo Fighters records, it's like Color and the Shape, which is the second oh. one. That's the you know where they yeah. the first had some big success with Everlong, and then it's right. Sonic Highways. Those are my two. Right. Right. Um, not my favorite songs per se, but my two favorite Foo Fighters records. Records, yeah. Um, Which one's Learn to Fly on? That Learn to Fly that. is on the album called Learn to Fly. Oh. Uh, and Learn to that record has so many good songs. Um, Times Like These is probably my favorite Foo Fighters like song. These, yeah. And that's on Which there. Hero. Or uh my my no. My Hero and Everlong are both on Color in the Shape. Color in the Shape. There you go. Yeah. Um, which is great. That's a great record too. That's yeah. solid from start to finish. And it was the yeah. first time the Foo Fighters were a band because uh, the first record is just Dave Grohl solo. Um, right. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, and, and, and uh, the next one, um, learning to, learning to fly that, that was like, oh, they're, they're actually going to stick around. It's not just a one-off. Right. And now that I think about it, times like guy. these isn't on that record. Times like these is on the one after that. Okay. Um, there's nothing left to lose, but I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how many people are interested in Foo, Foo Fighters. Now that Tom Petty's gone, they're like the Tom Petty, uh, certainly the Tom Petty of Generation X. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know that. Um, you know they had they had longevity, but they're never that cool. Um, you know it's weird. Prior to like, so I have kids start having kids in like 2000. Yeah. And that you know those so he he comes out with uh his solo album in like what 96 or something 97 full moon fever is 89 or sorry i'm not i'm talking about Foo fighters oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so 90 90 yeah 97 was when um the first one came out the one with the the ray gun on it right so that those years like that's kind of the last years that i'm sort of listening to albums by the time i have kids it it starts to just turn into like Jen and I have, you know, still have like CDs of stuff and we're just listening to what we actually Napster comes out in 2000. We we're listening to old stuff, you know? So I, I sort of stopped listening to music 
kind of in, you know, really detailed thing in early, you know, basically around 2000, because we started having kids. And for the next two decades to 2020, you know, where our kids are growing up and, and it's, you just, you know, pop culture starts to drop off in that, those years that you start having kids, it feels like to me. Yeah. And, and music changed a lot, you know, obviously, I mean, Napster at the beginning, at least for me was a big change musically where, where I get music from or, you know, and, and it starts with mainly old music, not kind of current music. You know, you're trying to find whatever old music you liked and torrent that or whatever, you know, peer network sharing or whatever it was. It definitely changed. Um, like Angie's asked me about music that I like, and she's mm -hmm. like, so you grew up with this, right? And I said, the answer is no, I grew up in a sheltered conservative Christian home. Right. Um, my mom listened to like, it was like, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Twyla Paris, and Amy Grant. And that was, that was it, right? Right. Um, and, and so I had a, an awareness of Christian music. Yeah. Uh, and my dad really loved uh, Christian. Like, he listened to a lot of, like, Christian radio stuff. Um, hmm. But um, I didn't know about most secular music. And, and so for me, like, I think one of the reasons I love 80s music so much is that like some of the first secular music I was really exposed to was because I'd go to my aunt's house and she listened to um, Warm 106.9, which is the soft, you know, the soft right, office the soft, background yeah, music. Right. And so like, I love that stuff. I, <laughs> I, I love 80s and 90s soft, yeah. soft hits. Um, and, and then, and then it just kind of expanded there, but, but torrenting and Napster. And actually there was one after Napster called audio galaxy, which I think was the best oh. streaming options ever. Right. Um, the, uh, you just started looking for stuff and what do right. you, what is yeah. it? What is it? I've, what is it I've missed? What, who's a, who's a artist or a band that people talk about that I have no idea. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I would just go on these kicks. I deep dive seventies music or I deep dive old country or I deep dive eighties yeah. music. And, um, well, prior to that, you had to, I mean, effectively go to sort of record shops to find stuff or, you know, there would be like, um, I think it's 88.5 in Seattle. That's the, you know, the alternative. EXP, or, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, uh, 107.7 or something where you would, or, you know, I, when I grew up, like my freshman year in high school was 1984 and that those years was like Rick D's weekly top 40. And you would just sit and listen to the radio, you know, while, while you know, looking yes. for listening for new music. But I mean, an MTV obviously was made a big, you know, I think that's 1981, you know, those kind of things, but you had to have cable have MTV. And if you grew up fairly sheltered, you wouldn't necessarily have necessarily have cable. Uh, no, no. Television. And there was no way you know? we, we were allowed to watch uh, MTV if we would have had cable. Right. Uh -huh. And they had all these shows, you know, like Yo MTV Raps it was, uh, you know, that was the where you discovered rap music. There was Headbangers Ball. I think that was on Sunday nights that was like heavy metal music. You know, you there was an alternative one. I can't remember the name of that one on MTV, but you know, you had to like kind of seek it out. We're not, you know, starting in like late 90s, early 2000s and Napster and I think mp3.ru. And there, there's these different sort of services that start coming out where you can discover stuff that you don't have to go anywhere. It's just in your home and, uh, you know. <laughs> Yes. It's really changes, dramatically changes. You know, so all it, my high school years were all, I graduated in 89. So it's it's all essentially like Silver Platters was over by Northgate or a CD shop or uh, Tower Records in Seattle or different places where you would go to find this stuff or television. Yeah, and that was it, Great. you know. 
Yeah. Um, you know, you get a, you get an appearance. I mean, it's like being a standup and you got an appearance on Carson. You, you're a band and right. you got an appearance oh. on Con- Conan was the guy in the nineties yeah. that was putting new yeah. music on, you yeah. know, if, if you were on, if you're on tonight show or letterman, it, it tended to be very safe uh, mm-hmm. artists. Conan actually, like, I know he, like the white stripes, uh, this lot of, lot of indie bands in the late nineties, early two thousands got breaks on Conan. You know who else did that kind of a little tiny bit subversively was the beginning of John Stewart's stuff with, I think, Daily Show. And maybe he even had a show. He had a show before Daily Show. I was on MTV. And he would do, uh, you know, music. Uh, And and I don't know how effective that was in breaking bands, but I remember it. And I remember being, oh, that's cool. You know, I... uh, I didn't even been Radiohead. I can't remember. There's some of her early bands that John Stewart had on his program that I thought, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think with um, with like Radiohead or not Radiohead with John Stewart. Like later on, he he still every so often put music on the Daily Show, mm-hmm. um, but it was usually bands that he liked, and so yeah. so they tended to be bands that had roots in like '80s punk, because <laughs> um, he he was in that scene in in New oh, York. Sure. I don't know if um, I knew that. But the, but the reason I mentioned that Sonic Highway's uh, record and TV show, yeah. The Foo Fighters, is the Nashville episode. Hmm. Um, they they talk about the the old hymn "How Great Thou Art," oh, and yeah. oh, and there is this montage scene of like every country artist you've heard of singing okay. the song: Carrie Underwood, Dolly Parton, um, wow. you know Toby Keith, uh, everyone, yeah. and and then and they they all talk about growing up in church. And uh, I have a, I know a guy who um, he's a touring musician, but he, for a while, his, his kind of spot was he would be the touring guitarist for like third or fourth place American Idol runner ups. Um, <laughs> That's great. He just, for some reason, he got on these tours. And so yeah. he'd, he'd go tour around with them. And he was talking about how, you know, this, this huge segment of, American Idol contestants over the years are church people. Hmm. Um, And then what happens is like, they go to Hollywood, uh, they do some cocaine, they come in third, they hit rock bottom, and then they start touring and uh, try to figure their stuff out. So he said a lot of times when he's touring is these people who are kind of broken and, and, you know, figuring out their faith and all this stuff. Um, But it's always striking to me how much like, how how much the church people, people always say, oh, the Christian music is ripping off secular music or it's five years behind and and I, but for so many uh musicians that people aren't aware of you know the first time i heard dashboard confessional i was like that guy went that guy goes to church yeah because i recognized a 90s youth group music in his in his acoustic <laughs> punk right or acoustic yeah. emo whatever it was and uh you know of course um you know bigger indie bands that have come out of seattle in the last 10 years a lot of them have church exposure <laughs> Yeah. background you you and i know a bunch of them and, um, yeah so like you know church music made those bands that are hit oh, hit totally. bands that play massive shows and and yeah you know, and, you know one other thing too i mean besides just like the obviously uh sort of musical um things that they learn along the way through church or through school or, or these other kind of venues maybe mm-hmm. one thing that you get that i don't think you get in a lot of other places is the regularity of doing it week after week after week after week i mean you know if you're involved with the church you know especially like a wednesday night maybe a youth group sunday there's worship at all of these things and so they are getting 
you know, sort of the interaction, even my own children, uh, getting the interaction of like, hey, you're dragging or you're, you got to pick it up or the verse is coming. You got to get, you know, you got to get the downbeat. You know, you the, the kinds of practice you wouldn't get unless you played maybe regularly. I, I think maybe in bars might have a similarity thing, but you have to be good enough in, especially probably in markets like Seattle or even Portland area where where you, to get a spot to play every week, you know, you have to be pretty good. Or in church, especially in maybe even smaller churches, you don't necessarily have to be great, but you can get better and better and better. And a lot of the people that you and I both know get a lot of experience doing those kinds of things. Um, you know, uh, our friend Dave, like he played drums for years at, at the church we both come from. And <laughs> I mean, you know, just that kind of, you know, over and over and over and over again thing counts for a lot i mean when it, when you by the time you get you can't ever replace maybe talent but what you can get in church that you might not get elsewhere is the kind of repetitive uh you know experience that you wouldn't really probably have otherwise other other places yeah and um <clears throat> space there's this combination of like i my my experience is that in in the white protestant church there's space mm -hmm. to grow and in the black gospel churches, there is um, demand to be better because I've heard stories of friends who who are in in more like black gospel kind of churches, okay. and oh, they'll let you play, but if you can't hang, I've heard stories of a deacon going and tapping a musician on the shoulder and saying you're done in the middle of the service, and another guy wow. takes the bass or the drums or the guitar and finishes oh. the service out. That's interesting. And I've heard that story from more than one musician, interesting. Uh, especially, especially guys I know in the South. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's one guy I know, and he's like, he's like half white, half uh, Cuban. Um, and, and he's like, I don't know how I ended up in this black church, but I was the guitar player in this black church. And I'm just like trying to keep up because I know that I could get the tap on the shoulder saying you're done today. Yeah. Oh, interesting. What but is it you think? about like the the white protestant churches that allow for the um maybe not so good maybe not as musical maybe or what is there something that you think sort of predicates that or brings that about or i, I mean i think i think every group develops oh, its own its own culture right yeah. um, every group develops its own culture and then and 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 mm -hmm. there's a comp there's this you know nature versus nurture there's a battle yeah. between the culture and the necessities of the moment. Hmm. So like right now, people are, are giving a lot of space because it's harder to find musicians. Yeah. And sure. it's only the biggest churches that yeah. demand, it's, let me rephrase that. It's only the biggest white Protestant churches that demand excellence because yeah. partly either because they're paying their musicians or they're, uh, they just have enough people that they can say, we don't need you if you can't keep up. Yeah. Um, and but then there's also a necessity of the moment where um you know the, the so it goes both ways um like i i know that like there were times the church we grew up at in the 90s there were so many musicians that there was a higher standard oh, um yeah. i also think but i also think there's like a cultural thing too where like um sometimes sometimes white folks can be a little sensitive and so you have to like cater to them and yeah. sometimes in minority churches like they're like you know suck it up buttercup and so that you know right. uh th yeah. that kind of uh precipitates into the music as well 
Right. Um, I think these things kind of like ebb and flow with, um, you know, with how people are and what they're doing. But what's interesting right. to me is how many musicians love church. Mm-hmm. And I think that spreads out to, I think it spreads out to, um, I think people in general like church more than, right. more than people realize. I don't know if you Especially found musicians, you think? Well, I think, I think musicians have a more natural in. Right. Because they had a, you know, if, if you grew up, like if you're, if you're one of the musicians that grew up in, our, in the church we did, and then, you know, you're out doing your thing, but you had good experiences as a musician, generally speaking. And right. so, so there's a natural in and the mu- you like the music. Uh, right. And there are people who aren't musicians, like they're not musical people, but they love the music. I, I actually remember one Easter, this is like 15 years ago. And my brother Zach came to church on a Easter Sunday morning. Okay. And he you could tell he just loved he loved being back with the music. Yeah. And and I think there is something about that where people who do have a church background like church. Uh, there's something spiritual about it. There's something enjoy, right. you know, po- you know, especially if it's positive and all that kind of stuff. And I think I, I'm curious to your thoughts on this, but I feel like this the struggle that so many are having right now who grew up in the church is that there is that church isn't easy for them right now. Hmm. And so they, they're really, they're really mad that church isn't easy for them. Right. Cause they could go like, you know, let's say that you grew up in a fairly like sheltered or conservative church. And now you're like a more like secular ish progressive person, but you're still a spiritual person. You want to go to church. You could go to uh, the church on, you know, three minutes away from me that, affirms everything you believe right progressively kind of speaking yeah not just not politics even just like your general ethos got it yeah but it's not church like you like right you know what i mean (laughs) yeah because i think there's like a just stink maybe what's that like their musicians just stink maybe no not even music like i kind of think i'm moving on beyond music but like okay all right i mean some of it's the music for sure yeah like you know, if you grew up, if you grew up in like, you know, uh, you know, generic community church with decent music, and then you go to like, um, you know, the, the the progressive Lutheran or Presbyterian or Methodist church uh, with, you know, yeah. uh, you know, more, litur- you know, but not good liturgical music. It's not like the right. Orthodox, you know, right. um, and uh, so, so it's not that, but I think there's also like a seriousness about faith that mm-hmm. exists in the conservative church um, and there's all kinds of disconnects and things that they're <laughs> hypocritical about and all that. But I think there's that thing. Like, yeah. I think I genuinely think that like people want church to just fit for them and they're kind of pissed that it fits for some people, but not for others. Right. I, you know, there's definitely, so I, I think of even like myself versus my brother-in-law in a certain way. Now I'm a pastor occupationally, so that it is a little bit different, but I have built into our system where once a month, uh, one of our elders or other, you know, other folks teach and I love it. I love going to church. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't, wasn't raised in the church, you know, from the time I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I get saved when I'm essentially 17, 18, really. And um, my senior in high school and 
So for me, coming to church has been essentially an adult thing for me. So when I come to church, like, I love it. I love the yeah. music. I love the, I like, I come in, I sit down, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> it's a place to relax and enjoy and be where like my brother, one of my brother-in-laws, he sort of, he was raised in a church and he's a little bit, you know, better, a little bit progressive, a little bit, you know, definitely different than I am. And for him, he comes and sits in church and feels like judged or, you know, he doesn't have all those same kind of sets of things that I have not being raised in a church. But that being said, I think you're right that there are a lot of people, um, and I've experienced this even from just people coming through our church in the last nine years or so, and even the church that that you and I were a part of, that there are a lot of things they like about it, you know, whether it's sort of just the community of it, the sort of the social kind of gathering parts of it, the definitely, definitely the music. I think even like non-believing people like the music. I mean, it's kind of like what you're saying earlier about like a lot of the country people people church music is pretty good music now not all of it <laughs> some of it's cheesy or some of it's not you know maybe you know but even so some of those are really pretty good songs i mean yeah. and, and and so there is something about that the atmosphere of it you know you have coffee i mean it's in some ways even though church coffee is known as like the worst coffee around you have it and i think like you know especially in places like seattle and portland there's probably better coffee than there are some places so you got that you got music you got you know food is a big part like our church we do communion as a meal like i think people come to it and they're like oh this is great you know <laughs> it's great you know great just people now I, I mean for sure to be sure there's judgmental people in church and and you know it can be a sort of a bummer of an experience but by and large I think, you know, I mean, we, we focus on youth, we focus on, you know, all these things that like people are looking for and searching for and, you know, pay for, frankly, I mean, you know, soccer camps in the summer, whatever it is, like, you know, they're trying to connect. And I think that art of connection is really something that you find in church and maybe, maybe you find in other places, but not necessarily like what church offers just in its sort of in its core so i totally i absolutely see that and yet at the same time people are in some ways going to church less and less but i think you know maybe a time's coming uh you know we had that jesus revolution film recently that really spoke to like kind of a wave of uh you know need that was very apparent i think that's kind of the same landscape now in many ways yeah and i'm the the, the jesus revolution film is interesting because you know I've had people ask me about it and yeah. um, I still haven't seen it. I know you saw it early, yeah. but uh, you know, I haven't seen it. And, but, but, you know, it's interesting to me how many people have gone who are not Christians or not even like generally religious people have said it's right. a fantastic movie right. and then just kind of moved on. <laughs> right. So, yeah. you know, I, I feel like uh, I, I was, I said to this one friend of mine, like, well, okay, but, like what's so great about it if it doesn't if it if you just walk away change. unchanged right. it's not right. that great then right like right. good for someone else i guess right. but if it's if it's not if if you haven't even even if like let's say that you don't become a christian but you don't like seriously consider it yourself is it really a good movie hmm. i think i think there's like a fair pushback to it um you know what that brings up something interesting so my uh youngest son he's a in his sports he's a gymnast and he for whatever reason you know the um the michael jordan documentary uh the last dance yes 
So that comes out like in COVID, right? Yeah. You know, early in COVID and everyone watches the thing. Well, you just now watch this three times. I mean, he has like, he's latched onto it. He just loves it. He loves the drama of it. He loves all of these things about it. And what to me is interesting is it's sort of the same thing about like what you're talking about. One, he's not a basketball player. You know, he's not, I mean, he's an athlete. So he has some of that stuff in him, but I think it's interesting that like it doesn't really change you sometimes watching something and and so and so he's so engrossed into it and yet it doesn't really I mean maybe it does inspire him to be a better gymnast I don't know <laughs> but but it does it touches something inside of him and I think this like uh Jesus revolution has a similarity to it that it touches something inside of you but do you actually want to change to be that thing and I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's much different between being Michael Jordan. <laughs> no one's going to do that or very, very, very few people can do that versus just, uh, you know, being a part of something that's great, that's encouraging, important, you know, spiritual, emotional, uh, intellectual. Um, I don't know. I, I To me, that connection is is clear in my mind that there's things that are inspiring, but not really ch changing, you know, and that's kind of a switch that, you know, for each person to make. Yeah, I mean, to me, and I guess full disclosure that I didn't see the final dance. Oh, last dance. Or yeah, whatever it's called. Yeah. And uh, but I, but I know you know I know enough about him and the stories and all that. I, I, right. I think it's I think you could like find it compelling. It's it's you know, um, it's compelling viewing the whole thing, and then right. um, you know, like you could take away lessons about you know, how ego gets in the way of success, oh, for sure. um, you know, individualism ruins team. And if you had more team and less individualism, you would have, you right. as an individual would have accomplished more. Right. Um, and, and I right. think, so I think you can watch a documentary or something and, and take like tangible life lessons away. Like, how am I going to change? Right. The other side of it is people like to be voyeurs <laughs> and oh, they like, absolutely. they like to play tourist in people's lives. Absolutely. And, um, and, and I think that, uh, that's the thing about like true crime or any of these sort of like, you know, documentaries is we can play podcasts. What's that? Podcasts are, podcasts are the same thing. I mean, it's, you're listening in on a conversation. So yes. many podcasts, maybe even including this one, you're listening in on a conversation. You're not there. You're not, you know, but you're voyeur, voyeuristically looking or listening to something. I absolutely that's a big part of our culture. I mean, it's it's a preeminent part of our culture today. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's then, and that goes back to what you're getting out of it because, like, right. Um, I think there's a place for sermons. Like, I think there's a a good role. Like, how human beings process information is is there's a place for. I mean, that's why we have TED talks. Yeah, because yeah. because somebody comes and presents an idea, makes a case. And we process that information. I also think there's a real strong place for discussion like this because somebody could be up there talking, saying their thing, and they're never answering the yeah, but, uh, or what about this? Yeah. And, I, and I think like one of the reasons we, that I started this podcast was that I didn't want to just be talking all the time. I wanted somebody to like, you know, I want, I wanted to like back and forth it a bit and yeah. And I think there's, um, I don't think like it's all, it's all bad. It's just what we choose to do with it. Like, you know, right. podcasts, a documentary or whatever, they can be informative. They can shape us. They can change us, or they can just be entertaining, <laughs> entertaining voyeurism. Right. Right. 
hopefully less sexualized or whatever, but it's like, you know, <laughs> like, like these are, you know, these are just like realities of, of the human experience. Like we do this thing and then like nothing changes us if we, if we don't make it. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and th- I mean, there's a balance to it as well. I think like, I remember there was one well-known preacher who after every Sunday would get on his Twitter and say like, you know, this happened at church today and we will never be the same. Like every, every Sunday they're like shaken to the core. And it's like, you know, some Sundays you're not like, no. can, can you just accept that some, some, some weeks, some months, some years are kind of boring and right. and you're not radically changed. You're just doing, doing what you're supposed to be doing or not. <laughs> yeah. So that was a big part of, you know, when we got the, our church, uh, building the guy prior to me said he felt like he was a failure and you know his church was kind of dwindled to eight or nine people and and to me like the idea that like you know some years are are just sort of holding on years like I thought you know I, and I even said to him you're not a failure like you've been holding ground for God in this place for all these years I mean for 20 plus years and you know some of them were down years for sh- to be sure and some of the end years were down years but that doesn't mean that that's not a success. It's just a different, you know, not everything is like the Chicago Bulls 1996 season. I mean, those are the rare, rare, rare exceptions. I mean, most of life and most of, you know, most NBA players, you know, they're not, you know, necessarily multimillionaires. Not that that's the correlation, I, you know, uh, but, but just that, you know, most things are pretty average and that's not a bad thing like i think you know we have a culture now where we sort of celebrate celebrity we celebrate youth we celebrate you know we're we're very much you know kind of like the tip of the top but most people and most of life is not the you know the extreme success it's the you know the regular sort of like working class and i think the church appeals to that but it's not you know to be successful doesn't mean you have to be you know yielding you know in a church setting you know millions of people and what is it 90 percent of churches are under 100 people <laughs> yeah so i think that's the vast man. majority of it and, and um i remember a couple of years ago i read a book called the next christians um by a guy named gabe lyons okay. and and I'd, i think i'd read something else from him before and and he's painting this picture of where he thought the church in america was going huh. and after reading it, I, I was talking to somebody about it and I said, well, you know, the thing about him is that he is an exceptional person. Um, at a young age in Atlanta, he was surrounded by exceptional people, founded a nonprofit, and then was so successful that he moved the nonprofit to Manhattan. Oh, wow. And then he goes to church with other people who are able to make it in Manhattan. Right. You know, so, so his only experience is with exceptional people. And then he writes a book trying to speak in broad terms, but only living in a small bubble. Right. And, um, and I think exceptional is the wrong word. Like they're ex- exceptional at specific things. Like they're exceptional at money or they're exceptional at their, at like a very specific career. Um, right. But, but, you know, there's other people who are not exceptional at money, but they're exceptional at people or they're exceptional at, um, you know, uh, serving or they're exceptional at some other thing right. and they don't make his radar. Right. Uh, and I think that, that kind of thing, we, we, we undervalue, we downplay because we, we live in these small bubbles. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, 
Well, it's almost the, you know, the Andy Warhol thing, 15 minutes of fame come true, but it's not true in its broadest sense. It's true in kind of a, like you're talking about a bubble sense. Like, you know, there's these things that are, you know, we now, you know, viral, like, you know, that they're, that are, that are like, you know, really big, but then you think of it like in a more global sense. And there's very few things, even, even through America that are actual globally, you know, as, as, you know, COVID that was global. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but be actually viral, but, but, you know, a lot of the kind of the cultural things that we think of, you know, they're, they can be big and they can be big to us for sure. But like, when you're thinking of like sort of actual massive, like, you know, worldwide phenomenon, it's, that's very rare still. It's still even it, in our globalized society. It still is. And, right. and some of it has, to, I mean, some of it has to do with where you're plugged into. Absolutely. Um, because like, like CNN has terrible viewership, right? Like nobody watches CNN. But if something isn't talked about on CNN or MSNBC or something or NPR, something like that, yeah, most most people don't hear about it because right. there are these channels, but they're so dispersed that unless you're plugged into that channel, these you know these nexus organizations still exist. And right. so stuff goes, I, I, I actually had this thought, I, I mentioned it um, a while back for some reason, but basically like, think about like um, teaching tape ministries, there <laughs> yeah. podcasts before there were podcasts. Yeah. And, and in the nineties, like there were these ministries that were mailing thousands of cassette tapes across right. the country, across the world, full of Bible teaching. Right. And you could get subscribed on a list and some of them were free and some of them you paid like a small amount or whatever, but like, yeah. you know, you're, you know, it's like the same as like your Apple or your Spotify subscription and you were getting these, these pot essentially podcasts. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and they existed without anybody knowing about it. Like these right. massive organizations that like never got on anybody's radar, but you know, millions of people were hooked into, mm-hmm. um, I think the the and I'm I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, the problem with some of this stuff, like the Last Dance, yeah. like as popular as that was, it was a lie, right? Like hmm. because it, Michael Jordan was a producer on this documentary about Michael Dor- Jordan, right? Like right. it's right. it got as honest as it could, right? But all of that footage was from him, and so right. what didn't he release? Uh, you know, he's an executive producer and he had the, he had rights to things. So what did he censor? Right. Um, even the Jesus Revolution film, like yeah. it's a very sanitized version of events and it's from a, a very narrow perspective. Right. Um, even to the point where they thought uh, Lonnie's wife, who's in the film, she's portrayed in the film. Right. They thought she was dead. So oh, the, interesting. Yeah, the producers so the, thought she was dead. The producers thought she was dead. Oh, I didn't know that. They only found out after the film started premiering that she was still alive. So they set up a Zoom conversation to like apologize oh, wow. to her um and make sure she wasn't going to wow. sue them, I guess. Cuz yeah. cuz they're portraying her uh and you have to have rights to stuff right. like this. Oh, interesting. And um and she did an interview where she said, "Yeah, like a lot of that stuff is true. And she said, like, I think the producers like really mean well, like, I think they're trying to do a good thing, but she said like, yeah, a lot of that stuff isn't, isn't real. And now some of that had to do with like how a film is made. Like, I think you could tell it's somebody who has no experience with how films are made. And so she has, she doesn't understand that like, yeah, not everything's going to be accurate to timeline because 
Right. They they need to like maybe take what's a three to five year sequence of events and and put it into an hour and a half film. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like at the same time, like she was saying, like it's not, it's not 100% true. Like not the Jesus part. Like that the big broad stroke stuff is 100% true. Right. Jesus was doing something amazing, changing people's lives. Yeah. But then these like more specific things. And and I kind of think there's something there's something in the American church going person that wants a fiction in their church experience. Not not right. about Jesus, but about people. I don't know what... Yeah, we want to worship people. I mean, were we heroes? You know, we want heroes, we want stars, we want, you know, protagonists and you know, we want we want all those people. And I, I think it, it's compelling. You know, it's compelling when there's a through line, when there's an actual story to the whole thing that that has sort of humanity in it. I, you know, I wonder sometimes, like, you know, even in the Gospels, you get these things where it, you know, this doesn't quite line up with this and it's perspective or vantage point or, you know, I, I think two things can be true at the same time that see, are seemingly contradictory. Like, I think that's the case, you know, I mean, like I remember our one friend, um, you know, I, my friend Damien, you're, you know, you know, and uh, he was doing this podcast and he was talking about how the church that he grew up in, which is the church we grew up in, uh, was sort of judgmental. Now I wasn't with him all the time, you know, I, I mean, obviously I, I, I wasn't, didn't, you know, but by and large, no, that's not the case. It's not, I would say that's not true. Now, he may have had some particular experience or he may, you know, he may have felt some oppression or repression or whatever of certain viewpoints of his or something that he would say that it was judgmental. But I'd say, no way, it's not judgmental. So I I think, you know, I I think people can have individualized experiences, obviously, for sure, that kind of lead to them viewing something a certain way. I think that's that's sort of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's idea with his podcast, Revisionist History, that you know, you don't really go like what you're referencing, like with Michael Jordan, you don't go to the person who lived the history, you go to like number two or number three, you go to like a couple people down who are present there and have nothing to lose. Like, I mean, obviously, Michael Jordan has an empire, whether it's, you know, the Nike empire that he had, or the Bulls empire, all these different things that he had done and accomplished and achieved, which are great achievements and great accomplishments. But you know, he has a sort of vested interest in keeping that not only alive, but as the sort of the top tier uh, of what he's done. And I think that's the thing that like, can you have sort of essentially two truths? Yes, you can. But, you know, there are things that are, you know, essentially more true than other things. And I think that's where you get into the kind of the trouble of it, or, you know, you get into the hero worship of it. You know, this guy was the, you know, the entire thing wrote on him. And actually, one thing that comes out in the last dance that is interesting is as incredible as Jordan was until he gets you know, Scotty Pippen and, and uh, Horace Grant and uh, and um, the big rebound guy, De- uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, yeah. you know, until he gets the rest of that team around him, even though he's an incredible star, he doesn't really win until he gets the rest of that team. And that, you know, arguably without that, they don't do the things, he doesn't accomplish the things he accomplishes without those other guys. And I think that's the thing, like, you know, it, it always is the sum is greater than the parts in anything, in a church, and a you know, music and film and any of these things. And so there's always these kind of give and takes, I think that we don't, you know, whether it's nuance, whether it's, you know, sort of just consideration that there's more to it than just this mathematical equation. There's an art to it sometimes that, that, you know, includes flaws, includes things that are unseemly that, 
that are a part of the whole. Yeah, there's it's very so philosophical. No, I mean, I think it's because I, I think there is an element within the church that won't accept anything less than perfection. Yeah, absolutely. Even though Jesus said the church is like this big tree and the birds of the air come and find rest in it. And and that's great if you're the bird, you find rest. But what if the bird is all the problem people, the trouble people? Um, yeah, legalists. The, the legalists yeah. and yeah. the degenerates, you know, totally. both are there. And yeah. you're you're not happy because one or both of them are are there as well. Right. Um, and I think right. I think that's the thing with like some of the people that we know who grew up in the church and now feel like oh, I was so judgmental and everything. And, um, I appreciated, actually, I really appreciated another friend, uh, mutual friend of ours, uh, Aaron, um, who was a mus- very successful musician yeah. and in the same scene as, as a lot of these other very successful musicians. Um, and he was being interviewed and he was talking about his church experience and he started to say all the generic, I grew up in this legalistic judgmental church. And they said, no, that's not really true. Yeah. I knew those people, but that wasn't yeah. where I grew up. And I appreciated that honesty from him. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I would actually say, like, were there legalistic or judgmental people at Calvary Fellowship in the in the 80s or the 90s? Or the, yes. Yes. Was I one of them at some point? Probably. Uh, you know, yeah. like, I mean, was, was I guilty of something? Sure, yeah. at some point. Yeah. E- either because I was immature or young or whatever. I, yeah. I, I can think of some people who I w- wish I had been more gracious to. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, but it's also like you might not have been wrong. <laughs> You know, like, like I thought about this, like, what's, what's the thing, what's the thing, if we could just, if we just changed this one thing would make you happy. Right. I don't think it would. Right. Like, like, I feel like it's like, it's like, if I just change this one thing, will that make you happy? Will you, will you be cool? Will will we, are we okay? And I don't think it will. Uh, (laughs) You know, what's interesting. Churches are like this. uh, Basketball teams, I'm sure like this. Like, you know, you, you like to think like, if you're the, if, if you're the, well, I'm the pastor or the, you know, the captain of the team, whatever it is, like, I think of it like, you know, like you're on a ship out on the open ocean and you're the captain of that ship. You've got the helm, you've got the, 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 it's not a steering wheel, whatever, you know, the rudder control, whatever it is. And you're navigating and you've got like, you know, the staff and you've got the galley and you've got the engine room, you've got all these things, but you're still subject to the weather. Mm-hmm. to the waves, the wind, the, you know, you're subject to the, what comes your way. And I think that's the thing that like, you're never in complete control of anything in a sense. And I think that's the thing that we, we kind of long for in a certain kind of way. My wife who works at children's hospital here in Seattle, she was having a team meeting. I, I hope I'm not going to give anything like, you know, bad away or anything, but um she was in this team meeting and it was like, how do we connect with each other? These, so these are essentially schedulers that schedule major surgeries. And one of the things, you know, they're talking about connection with each other. And like we were, she was kind of referencing, like they need to be connected. The, the staff needs to be connected so that when the patients come and have this interaction with these schedulers or surgeons or with nurses or whoever it is that, that they feel like they're on the same page. And I, I said, you know how you can do that? One way you can do that is, and I, I think this is my problem with all customer service, is the the idea that when you call into any customer service, be it, you know, T-Mobile or internet, anything, 
you call them customer service and you have to give your information two and three and four times. It's like every person you talk to, yes. you have to give all your information again. Doctors are some of the worst at this. And I was like, they have these incredible systems now, you know, these connected Epic is the system that all these hospitals use where you plug in all your information. But Jen, my wife was telling me like, you know, that sounds great, but it's much more difficult to do than you think because of laws, because of HIPAA laws and all these things that are, they're sort of in the way of them accessing certain bits of information. So that's why essentially in her mind, you have to tell all your information over and over and over again. She doesn't have, literally doesn't have access to what the person, the intake person who brings you into the hospital and then the scheduler doesn't have the access to it. And then the nurse doesn't have the, you know, all these people don't have access to that information that's in those systems. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the thing. Like no matter how much control you think you have, you don't in so many ways you don't. And I think that's brings about like this idea, what you're talking about of like, you know, people want, this perfection perfected system of like you know how you minister to the gospel how you do this how you you know evangelize how you do hospital visit whatever it is and they're all broken i mean it doesn't matter how much money you have how much resources you have still i mean children's has billions of dollars and they can't share basic you know name <laughs> you know, basic information if they can't do it, it seems like, you know, a church that has whatever money, you know, it's, they, we have a tough time doing that. Isn't it funny though, like how um, people will, uh, people <laughs> will do something outside of church and think no big deal of it, but then inside of church, like, how dare you? Totally. How dare you? Totally true. Like Angie was, uh, Angie was looking at like, it's, it's, it's become trendy for like young families, families with younger kids to join the Elks club here. And it has largely has to do with the swimming pool. Um, but they have, so, so like a bunch of families at this local school are joining the Elks club and Angie was looking at it and she's like, they make you take vows and affirm like certain beliefs and you, you know, and yeah. it's like, you know, you try, try like doing half of that in, in most churches. And it's like, what, why do I have to do that? You know, right. like, but, but you go somewhere else and it's like, no big deal. Uh, hey, let's all, let's all do this. And I think there's, you know, Tim Keller had this line about millennials and this is 10 years ago. So it's like older millennials he's talking about, but he said, basically like they want community, but they also don't want to do anything it takes to have community. And, um, yeah. and, and I think there's a little bit of like reality that like you can have all these systems in place, but if you don't want to do the things yeah, um, necessary, um, like California just passed that thing where it's like all, all, um, internal combustion engines will be banned in California by 2030. Okay. Oh, wow. This is, this cool. happened like six months ago and everybody's like, you know, but it's not going to happen because what'll happen is it, regulators and administrators and bureaucrats will say they have a, a, a lot of power in the state the way the state's set up. And so they'll say, we can't implement it yet. So they'll give an extension for five years. And they'll right. do that for decades. Um, right. There were all these rules that like federal buildings, that Congress passed a rule and uh, under the Bush administration that federal buildings um, by 2020 had to be um, like car basically not pollutant. Yeah. But then they, the uh, EPA never did regulations and how to implement it. So yeah. a bunch of buildings just bought new um uh, boilers and you know like all these things and they're more efficient than they used to be but it's like they're, they're yeah and they're like yeah so we just bought this thing it's shelf life is another 20 years uh 
So even if they got all the rules in place tomorrow, this building will not be um, environmentally friendly for, for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like we have these things we can say we want to do these things, but it's like, unless we, you know, it's kind of like a conversation I had with somebody recently where uh, they were talking about the need for a biblical worldview. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, you have all this curriculum for a biblical worldview. Why don't you just teach the Bible? Right. And like, we, <laughs> I want to yeah. grow spiritually. Uh, I want to have, you know, maybe just pray. Maybe right. just read your Bible. Maybe just go to church. Right. Like these basic things that, no, I don't want to do that. I want this, other, yeah. you know. Right. So, you know, it's interesting that, so our local school district here, Shoreline school district that we're at, um, they're having like a $19 million shortfall this next year. And my neighbor who's really connected to it, he's one of the teachers there and and the head of his department. And he was saying that basically if they, if the teachers had taken a, I think it was like a either a freeze on their raises because they're, of course they're unionized. If they took a freeze on their raises or even like 1% less, they could have essentially balanced the budget. But as is, basically what's going to happen next year, they refuse to do that. The union refused to do that. And so basically massive amounts of programs are getting cut. So like, you know, what Shoreline School District is known for, you know, it's arts and music and drama and all these things. They're, all those programs are all getting cut. Sports are getting cut to a lesser degree, of course. But um, a, lot of, a lot of these programs are getting cut. And at some point it's like, you know, what's the number one thing here? The number one thing is the students, the kids. And, you know, the teachers are important. Of course, you have to have them. And, you know, there's a long been an outcry for, you know, more pay for teachers, which I totally agree with. But if you don't have the things for the students at some point, now maybe not everything. I understand there's things that places you can cut, but they could just get a freeze for a year and balance the budget. And like, I mean, you know, I to me, it's like, I, I just think, at some point when the institution doesn't serve the institutional needs anymore, if the grocery store doesn't have the groceries, but has the workers, if the church has the, you know, I, I don't know, at some point things yeah. get to serve themselves I, I think, instead of the thing they're supposed to be serving. I think what you're saying makes sense, except that it's kind of like this thing I heard yesterday where okay. um, a guy was going around saying like, you know, there's no national minimum wage in Switzerland um, and their standard right. of living is just fine. But what he's not telling you is that each of the cantons has their own set minimum wage. There's no need for a national one. Right. Um, And and there's there's other things going on as well. But but there's all these complexities that people don't talk about. So like in our district, we have a shortfall. They've announced they're going to cut positions and all this stuff. Right. But what they don't tell you is that like this is my big hobby horse is they keep promoting principals to the district office. (laughs) So if you're a school principal and you're making like $120,000 a year. And you just got yeah. promoted to the district office. That means they had to promote somebody else to become the new, the replacement principal and raise their pay. Right. And then on top of that, um, you, you have this thing. So you say, oh, we're cutting budget. But if you hadn't promoted the principal, kept right. that principal in their position, which you would think since they got promoted, they're good at. Right. And then you hired somebody from the outside to be that uh, district office role but you hired them new. So they're not making 120,000. They're making 75,000, right? That's a salary. That's a, that's a year that's salary right, for somebody. Right. And so what they don't tell you is like, yeah, they promote in the last, and it is like five or six principles in the last couple of years. Um, right. And there's like all of these like extra, you know, positions that exist. And then they cut things that yeah. really, you know, so there's that these, are, yeah. And I think that goes back to like, 
right. to wrap it up because I know you have to go, but the, you know, the, the conversations with, you know, church and everything like our, you know, your friend Damien is probably right. There was probably somebody who was super judgmental that he was around right. at church. Right. <laughs> right. And then at the same time, he's not right. And these things are so complex and they're yeah. so nuanced. And like, we have this school board election coming up and basically there's these two extreme positions that are running and you have to choose between one of them. And it's like, you're not choosing a good option here. The status quo isn't good. So if you vote for this one group of candidates, you're voting for the status quo, which is bad. If you vote for this other group of candidates, they seem well-intentioned, but they also don't seem to know what's actually going on in the school district. I've met some of them. I've talked to some of them and they seem <laughs> to not, like they have these one or two hobby horse issues and they, yeah. they seem to not have a, a sense of what's like the broader you know, right. issues. And so, so we're not choosing, we don't have great options. And I think that's kind of the right. same thing, like with, with yeah. church community, all this stuff is like, we're trying to like find simple answers to complex problems. Totally. Totally. So. And, you know, yeah, well, we, I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing at some point it's, it, you know, I think it goes back to that thing. It's holding ground. I mean, you're trying to just hold on at some point to, to what we have at all. And I, I, you know, I, that's why there's people that really hole up, you know, I mean, there's a parable about that, right. That, you know, the guy who buried the talents in the ground, the whole, that's the whole thing. What do you do with what you have? And I think it's good to do stuff with it. I mean, the yield is also up to the Lord in some ways that those two parables don't go together, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, there's, you know, you invest it as best you can and hope for a solid return on the work that you do. Yeah. Well, cool. Hey, thanks for hopping on. I know you've got meetings you got to yeah. run to, but um, yeah, appreciate, appreciate you being on with us and it's always good to chat. So. Yeah. We'll have you back on at some other point. All right. Thanks, Adam.